Welcome back to the Tales of Two Cities podcast. I'm Ricky Rodas. I'm Yasmin Gremel, and we will be your hosts this week. This episode is all about endings, of beloved institutions, of ways of life, and of life itself. We talked to a family in North Richmond about how they managed to run their errands in a place that doesn't have many businesses left. They're all like liquor stores. And they don't have a wide selection of things, so... And we will hear about how Oakland fans feel about the Warriors moving across the bay. I think there was a special connection because a lot of the teams that the Warriors had, they weren't oftentimes that talented. They were gritty, uh, tough. We'll learn about a bridge in Richmond that's seen better days. Then we will talk about the team running the last video rental shop left in Oakland. And we'll head across the bay to experience the last days at Lucas Ravioli Company after almost a century in business. Coming in, I feel like I got kissed on both cheeks by my grandmothers. But not all closings involve a business or a failed infrastructure. We'll spend time with a family working with a deaf doula, a woman who helps people cope with dying. Finally, we talked to Anna Cash at the Urban Displacement Project about her work to map how the Bay Area is changing as new people and businesses move in and others move out. That's all coming up on the Tales of Two Cities podcast. Reporter Nusha Nadezad spent the day with a family from North Richmond, where it isn't exactly easy to find places to shop. What's wrong with being? What's wrong with being? What's wrong with being confident? Twin sisters Nubia and Zafira Braden, who are nine years old, are riding in the back of their mom's black Ford Flex. The twins and their mom Caprice are on their way out of North Richmond to get their shopping done. They have to travel to three different cities because over the last several decades, North Richmond has lost most of its businesses. The family has three errands to run today, and it's going to take about three hours. What is shopping like in North Richmond for you? Non-existent. <laughs> We have to go outside for everything. North Richmond currently has three corner markets, but they don't fulfill the needs of residents. They're all like liquor stores, and they don't have a wide selection of things, so especially with having kids and trying to have them eat healthier, the corner store doesn't have what we need. And that goes for pretty much any kind of shopping. There's, there's literally nowhere to go anywhere near here for clothes. Or so. anything. <laughs> Or anything. Are we in Richmond right now? This is El Cerrito. Today's first stop, Safeway. All right, chicos, let's go. This is for the chicken. It was buy one, get one free. Okay, I think we're good for now. First store, done. We head back to the car. Probably go to Arco because the gas is expensive right now. And that's like the cheapest one. And that's in San Pablo. 
We're city hopping, huh? Yes, we. That's what we do. And make it quiet. Okay. On the drive to San Pablo, I spoke with Caprice about her role on the North Richmond leadership team. They are a group of residents working together to improve the quality of life in North Richmond. I'm actually in the process of um, working with a team of people to bring a laundromat to North Richmond so that some of the residents can walk to do their laundry or, you know, they don't have to drive all the way to San Pablo to do their laundry or, you know, just have to go out of their way and spend three hours doing laundry outside of their community, you know? Dania Polito, who is the community engagement manager for the North Richmond Farm, says that during World War II, tens of thousands of people moved to Richmond and North Richmond looking for work in the shipyards. So when you had an influx of people, you had a demand, you know. And so a lot of businesses were thriving during that time because you had the, the war economy going on and you had like a lot of people that were coming into North Richmond and Richmond in general. And so it really allowed for these businesses to thrive. But after the war, a different story began to unfold. Many residents were left without a job. Systemically, like other challenges started to come to North Richmond, such as like the war on drugs, the prison industrial complex, like a lot of people started getting incarcerated. A layer of challenges to just start hitting the community one after another. Banks also began redlining. That's when a resident is refused a loan simply because they live in a poor neighborhood. Here's Princess Robinson, who is the community engagement coordinator for the watershed program. So you couldn't get a loan to, you know, improve your home or you couldn't get a loan to own a business in this kind of neighborhood. A bank would not let that happen because of of the neighborhood that they were in. It was a very it was a lot of poverty here, you know, and, and they just felt that it was taking a risk. So they labeled us as a risk. Since there aren't any grocery stores, residents like Tanya and Princess have been working with the county on projects to bring healthier food options to North Richmond. The county government has provided close to a million dollars in funding for a farm that Urban Tilt is building. County Supervisor John Joya sees this as an exciting opportunity. They've been building out a farm further up Fred Jackson Way that would also have a community kitchen would have a cafe, farm stand, um, a little community space for the residents. So it would be more than just a just a, a farm. It would be a central hub, and it would be really focused on healthy, fresh, fresh food. For Caprice and her daughters, it's three stops today, and it's time for the last one. They finally arrive at Michael's Craft Store in Pinole to buy some paint supplies. Okay. We're going to get these ones because we don't need that much colors, but this will be fine. What are these? Okay. We're good. Hi. You find anything okay today? Yeah. Oh, there's some coupons. Nubi and Zafira sell their paintings to save up money, maybe even enough to afford to live in a different town. But as for their mom, she has no plans for leaving. They're trying to get us out of North Richmond. Kind of, but I like it. I'm going to stay there if they, you know, if they decide to move later when they get older, I'll stay. After three cities and almost three hours, now it's time for the family to finish their shopping and head back home.
This is Nusha Nadarzad for the Tale of Two Cities podcast. The Golden State Warriors are trying to win a third NBA title, but each playoff game brings them closer to the end of their run in Oakland. Next season, they will be moving across the bay to the brand new Chase Center in San Francisco. It's coming to an end. Reporter Wyatt Kroof set out to see just what the Warriors mean to Oaklanders. If you've ever been to a Golden State Warriors game, you're familiar with that drawn-out Warriors chant. The fans are loud, so loud that the Oracle Arena has earned itself a nickname. Roracle. But the days of deafening noise in Oracle are numbered, and many Oaklanders are not happy about it. The move has brought to the surface a growing tension among the fan base. For some, that tension dates way back to 1966. Oracle wasn't always called Oracle. When it opened in 1966, its name was quite a mouthful. The Oakland Alameda County Coliseum Arena. Back then, the Warriors played at Cow Palace in Daly City. But in 1971, the team moved to Oakland, and they took a curious name, Golden State. To come here from San Francisco, where they were known as the San Francisco Warriors, and not take the name of Oakland was, wasn't a real affront to a lot of us. That's Paul Brecky Meisner. He's a longtime Oakland resident and sports historian. He remembers those early Golden State Warriors teams fondly and says they captured a certain ethos of the city. Oakland's a tough working-class town, I think there was a special connection because a lot of the teams that the Warriors had, they weren't oftentimes that talented. They were gritty, uh, tough. The high point of those early years in Oakland came in 1975 when the Warriors won the NBA championship. (laughs) Oakland celebrated. Hundreds of fans met the team at the airport. But that celebration would be the last one for a long time. The Warriors didn't win a championship for the next 40 years. And for most of those seasons, they were bad. Still, Oaklanders stuck with them. That's how Marcus Thompson remembers it. Just watching them with my dad, that's what we did. Like, you know, 7 o'clock, 7.30, you know, came on. uh, We would watch the game. He would be mad because they'd be losing. And eventually he'd fall asleep. (laughs) <laughs> and I'd watch the whole game, and then, you know, he'd wake up and be like, why'd you turn the game off? And I'm like, dude, the game is over. They lost. Thompson has been covering the Warriors since 2004. He's the lead columnist for the Athletic Bay Area, and he's been to hundreds of games at Oracle. So Oracle is definitely unique. It has its own It has its own kind of vibe. Uh, it, was, it was a grassroots, you know, had like that kind of family reunion type vibe, not like really a... Not like really a, you know, I'm at a basketball game. It was more about <laughs> just, you know, being in, it was more like a community event. Nate Parham also writes about the Warriors for the blog Golden State of Mind. He remembers the bad years, too. I went off to college in the East Coast and just, you know, they were terrible for, me for many years. But no matter how, no matter what year I came back, I mean, the arena was full. And I think that's part of the experience of being a Warriors fan is just, I mean, you really are rooting for the lovable loser. One thing Thompson and Parham agree on, Oracle got loud, even when the team sucked. 
when the crowd gets going, I mean, it, it literally is. Like, you hear the vibrations of your ear. It's hard to hear the person next to you. It was bedlam. It was crazy. It's like, you couldn't hear yourself think. Over the last decade, as the Warriors went from lovable losers to the most dominant team in the league, they also became must-see entertainment. Along the way, the crowd at Oracle started to change. So the crowd is definitely more techie, more Silicon Valley. The mom-and-pop vibe is, is kind of gone. Cheap tickets used to go for $30. Now those same tickets usually go for over 100 Paul Bricky Meisner sees the move to the Chase Center as the culmination of this shift. I'm sure the Warriors will be successful in San Francisco, that there's more corporate money on that side of the bay, for sure. But it's going to be a different fan base, I'll tell you that. Before the Chase Center has even opened, the team has already pulled in about $2 billion in revenue. Ticket prices are expected to keep rising. Parham understands the decision from a business perspective, but it still hurts. Oakland has experienced a lot of things leaving, a lot of, you know, just economically and historically, um, business leaving, industry leaving, and uh, this is yet another blow to Oakland in some sense. Thompson would have liked to see the team stay and build in Oakland. But I don't want anybody to be here who don't want to be here. <laughs> I like that's, I mean, I'm from Oakland, so that's, that's just not how I look at things. If you if you want to go, go. You know, and you might want to be here. We rock with people who want to stay. So that, that that's how I feel. For now, the Warriors still have games to play. The players have said they'd like nothing more than to send off Oakland with one more championship. You can be sure that Oracle will be roaring until the very end. For the Tales of Two Cities podcast, I'm Wyatt Kruth. Our music is Proto-Funk by Kevin McLeod, licensed under Creative Commons. And a special shout-out to Allison Stamos for the audio recorded in Oracle Arena. Luca Ravioli in San Francisco is a famous Italian market that many consider to be the less of its kind. It shut down late in April. Customers, both old and new, are mourning its loss and celebrating its legacy. Reporters Ashvini Malshi and Annie Berman have this story. Luca Ravioli Company has stood on the corner of Valencia and 22nd Street in the Mission for nearly a century. On April 30th, the beloved stop-and-go Italian market will shut its doors for good. We traveled across the Bay Bridge on a sunny afternoon in March to visit Luca's on one of its final days. We spoke with Bay Area locals who were heartbroken by the loss of their favorite pasta joint. Because you can't go to a lot of places and get this type of product. This is family-friendly. I mean, they know you, you know. I mean. Well, they, yeah, you'd walk up, you know, like my, my mother-in-law would come up, they'd go, hey, Mrs. Tulaski, how are you doing? I mean, it's just, they don't, you don't have that anymore. Kathy Tulaski is a native San Franciscan. She's been coming to Luca's for as long as she can remember. I've been here a long time. My husband's family's been here a long time. Tulaski's basket is filled to the brim with cardboard boxes of fresh-made pasta, liters of imported olive oil, and plastic tubs of homemade sauce. The tortellini, the veal tortellini, and then, of course, their pesto. And their meat sauce. I freeze the pesto, so I have it in my freezer. They're staples. It's great. I'm going to miss it. Sean Flynn moved to San Francisco from Chicago three years ago. And the first place he stopped when he landed at SFO? I came here and I bought pasta and I bought uh, tomatoes and some of their uh, ravioli and olive oil. Like the whole fixings. Six! Six! Seven! Seven! 
122 yeah, with tax over. on alcohol, no tax on food, your total is 94.91. Coming in, I feel like I got kissed on both cheeks by my grandmothers, and uh, I made friends with Steph, who works behind the counter. He's like one of the first five people I met in San Francisco. My family's Italian, Sicilian. They would correct you, I'm sure, but um, <laughs> I spent a lot of time going into little places in Chicago called like Amato's and Amici's, and like this just felt like home. Flynn usually arrives with some key items on his shopping list. Uh, get some of their sausage, uh, some fresh pasta if I'm feeling adventurous. I always come here for cheese, so I get the Locatelli Pecorino Romano cheese. It's just something I grew up in, you know, happened in the fridge. It was a staple. We met Liam O'Connor next by the row of freezers toward the back of the store. He held a basket of ravioli trays and tubs of meatball in one hand and swung a baby carrier back and forth with the other. I was just bringing my son here for the first time. His name is Joseph James O'Connor. He's a fifth generation San Franciscan. Like many others, O'Connor was sad to see Lucas go, but he could see why the owners finally decided to retire and sell their historic lot. Is it Pete, the family that owned this store? Probably never in their wildest imagination could imagine they could sell this corner lot for multiple millions of dollars and they'll probably have a very good, you know, a very good existence after this. This is the problem that a lot of people that have been here this long, they don't come from money or have money. They're people that work all the time and that's the unfortunate thing. It's like a double-edged sword. It's like, do you want, like, Grandma Luca back there making ravioli or do you want her enjoying her, her kids, her time, whatever, on the beach, you know, because they work hard their whole lives. The story of why Lucas has to go is a classic Bay Area tale, a business run by a hardworking family now worth a fortune. Earlier this year, Lucas CEO Michael Fenno decided to retire after over 50 years in business. As the San Francisco Chronicle reported, he couldn't find a way to keep the business in the family, so he put a store-slash-pasta factory on the market for over $8 million. For many, the end of Lucas is the end of an era, a little piece of San Francisco's soul gone forever. And before longtime customer Liam O'Connor bids farewell to Lucas, he has one last thing to say. Thank you so much for the many years of delicious food that, I'm in, that I've eaten. And I'm going to eat because I'm leaving here with quite a bit of stuff. I'm Ashwini Malshi. And I'm Annie Burton, reporting for the Tale of Two Cities podcast. Even in the era of Netflix and chill, video rental stores still exist. Reporters Julia DiGinero and Rosa Ismaili visit the video room in Oakland. The shop is still alive and kicking after 36 years in business, although the customers have shifted over the years. Rosa and I are at Video Room in Oakland. It's the last movie rental store in the area. The owner, Joseph Loom, is putting back return DVDs and shows us one of his favorite films. Oh, this movie is uh, uh, an old classic by Kurosawa. It's called The Hidden Fortress. Hidden Fortress. And it's, um, uh, I would say, it's probably the inspiration for Star Wars. The store opened for business 36 years ago featuring laser discs. The technology had just kicked in and people thought it was going to be the future. It was like a big adventure for us to, to try this new uh, media. Today, they rent DVDs, but the same thing is happening again. The technology is getting old. Most of our customers are, are seniors, and so they uh, prefer to watch it the normal way. I like the customers. Uh, they're, they're almost like family and friends. Valerie and Ricardo, a couple who has been visiting the shop for years, are picking up movies. 
We ask them what brings them back every time. And they say it's the people who work in the shop. These guys, if I'm looking for something, they're so knowledgeable. A lot of times I can just recite part of a, a line in a movie and, oh yeah, I can find that for you. What would you come? Let's say you come here. Where do you go first? Which well, is a place you usually... Westerns. Usually Musical theater. And musicals. And, and, and action. Yeah. Today we get, came to get the born identity. Matt Damon is our greatest, greatest, the most fascinating movie star. The store is special for them because here they can find rare gems that don't exist online. Like our grandkids are probably you guys' age. And they get a chance to see something that they probably would never see. So that's what happens here. And it's the last place standing. Stephanie, another customer, is meticulously looking at Polish movies. She has been renting DVDs for years and says it's the best way to watch a movie. My daughter would never be here. She would be watching it on her phone or her laptop and doing about 15 different things at the same time. And I don't think that's the way to watch a film. For Granbo, visiting a DVD store is mostly practical. Yeah, it's what I know how to do. You, know, you get the uh, DVR and you push the button, put the thing in, and then it plays. I don't want to learn any new technology. I stay off all social media. I don't want anything to do with Google. The shop divides films based on country of origin, director, and genre. We ask Rambo which genres is he into these days. The, uh, the French noirs, the kinky French noirs. French are always kinky, you know, uh -huh. so you, you always know there's going to be something kinky in there. German gets a little, uh, a little violent, you know, a little grotesque. No, no. So this one, I just go through and I see which one I want. And then I take it home and my wife will go, what did you get that for? I said, I, I don't know. It seemed like a good idea at the time. That's horrid. I'm going, I liked it. As owner Joseph Flerm works to check out the DVDs, he says the video store has been struggling financially. We don't rent many. Uh, as you can tell, that we don't have a lot of customers come in. Um, I would say around 50, maybe, a day. It's not going to last. We're, we're, you know... Unless something else happens and we start selling marijuana. Okay, then, then maybe the store will survive. There's nothing we can do. We're only uh, hoping for customers, our loyal customers, that come back again and again. As they approach the counter with a born identity in hand, Valerie and Ricardo know they will be back next week. Every once in a while we take a break like today and we say we're going to see a movie tonight. And you would like to see this place keep on going. Oh, oh yes. heck Absolutely. yeah. Absolutely. Oh, heck yeah. Yeah. This is Juliette de Grenoble. And Rosa is my life for the tales of two cities. Reporter Edward Booth and I set out to report on the Richmond Bridge, which is important to Bay Area commuters, but needs a lot of repairs. We soon found out that getting there on foot wasn't as easy as we expected. So, Ed, how much longer is this walk going to take? Because we're in um, Point Richmond right now, and I see no signs of water or a bridge. I'm not sure where I'm going, honestly. Um, <laughs> That's me and my colleague Ricky Rodas. We're in Point Richmond trying to walk to the Richmond-San Rafael Bridge. We'll get there. We'll get there. Many Bay Area residents commute across the bridge to work, but the 63-year-old Span has seen better days. 
On February 7th, chunks of concrete rained down on commuters, damaging a car and shutting the bridge down for hours. In March, a pothole appeared on the upper deck, which workers scrambled to fix. On April Fool's Day, Richmond Mayor Tom Butt sent out a joke email saying the bridge will close indefinitely due to crumbling infrastructure. Then, over the next two weeks, more concrete actually fell from the upper deck. As Ricky and I try to walk to the bridge, we have some concerns. Yeah, we might get run over at some point. We um, might get run over at some point. It's okay. It's, uh, it's, it's... Ooh, there we go. That looks promising. That, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's the freeway. This is the freeway, but the freeway leads to the bridge. Caltrans recently launched an $8 million project to repair the upper deck, specifically its expansion joints, which allow it to expand and contract with changing temperatures. Those joints are as old as the bridge, veterans of the 1950s. The repairs began in March, but the process is slow and has resulted in a series of lane closures. This looks promising. Okay, cool. <laughs> this looks really promising. That's Look. a beautiful sunset. Yeah, I know. And, and this road keeps going, and that's what we want. Basically, don't want to, you know, get to a point where we run out of options. Like all the other four or five times that's happened to us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're still nowhere near the bridge, but we've made it to downtown Point Richmond, where residents tell us about how much they rely on it. Here's Cordell Hinsler. I feel that it um is very important uh, that we need to have to keep this bridge open because it's like, because people commute from here to San Rafael and it's like, and it's very hectic, especially during peak hours. Lynn Anderson Marshall is most concerned with the traffic the repairs are causing. Very frustrating, of course, but it's not like it's an emergency for me. I do think about emergency situations or police or ambulance need to get across in a hurry and things are backed up. That's very difficult. We're glad to stop to chat, but it isn't getting us any closer to the bridge. We can go down and around. Okay, so up this... Another hill. Another concrete hill. Concrete hill. It's the best kind of hill. Why is that? I don't know. Uh. <laughs> Tired and out of breath, we stop to enjoy the view of the bay and the vibrant sunset. Eventually you get there if you try hard enough. All right. I like your newfound optimism. That's the love. <laughs> I still think we're probably going to run out of time. Um, that's fine though. After getting lost in the hills at Point Richmond, we finally give up on getting to the bridge. Instead, we circle back to the commercial area to join in at a neighborhood council meeting. Resident Buzz Bayless is surprised that the bridge is in such a sorry state considering the last retrofitting it underwent about 15 years ago. The, yeah, I, I was really surprised that, that the 900 and some odd million dollar earthquake retrofit that that bridge went through I'm going to call it 10 years ago, um, that that didn't include some of that kind of stuff. Point Richmond Neighborhood Council President Peter Tallin says people living near the bridge are more concerned with traffic than decaying infrastructure. I don't know if you've been here in the morning, but it'll be backed up down Tewksbury and, you know, people trying to get onto the freeway. And he also clues us into some vital information. Walk to the bridge. Get some sound. Of it. Get some sound. Oh, that didn't quite pan out. Yeah. Um, you know, you can get underneath the bridge. Mm. Can you? Yes. Yeah. There's actually. So you know, there's a bike path. Mm. Is is that on the Point Melody side or? It actually goes under the bridge. Under the bridge. Okay. Comes out. Huh. Well, we didn't make it, but for Tales of Two Cities podcast. I'm Edward Booth.
I'm Ricky Rose. Well, I'm Ricky Rose. I'm Eddie, Edward Booth. I'm Edward Booth. <laughs> and I'm Ricky Rodas. You've probably heard of birth doula, someone whose job is to coach mothers during childbirth. Our next story is about a new kind of doula, a deaf doula. Or, as they prefer to be called, an end-of-life doula. The role is to provide non-medical support and comfort to a dying person and their family. Reporter Annie Berman set out to learn more about their work and in the process what it means to live and die well. I've heard statistically that the last words that most people say are, oh, <laughs> I, I really try to think about that, like, do I want to say that and my la as my last words, or would I rather say, you know, something else? That's Zoe Francesca. She's an end-of-life doula, which means she's kind of a spiritual guide, whose job is to be there for people who are dying to talk through the big questions so they can face death with as little regret as possible. Unlike hospice staff, doulas are not medical professionals. Their role is simply to guide and comfort. Hi, Hi. Peter, this is Annie Berman, Peter hey, Burroughs. How are you? Nice to meet Amy's you. Son. Nice to meet you. I spent an afternoon at an assisted living home with Zoe, her patient Mimi, and Mimi's son Peter. Peter is a journalist in his 40s, and Mimi is in her 90s. She began acting in plays at a very young age. My life was, was not a tragedy. I, I have no regrets about the theater because I loved it and I think it made me a better person. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't have any great regrets about Mike Burroughs, wherever he is. Mike was Mimi's ex-husband and Peter's father. Mimi has dementia and her doctors say she probably only has a few more months to live. Where is he? Did Mike die? He's up there or down there, I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know. He died, yeah. He did die? Yeah. He died five years ago. Are you making this up? No, I'm not mm -mm. making it up. How did you know he died five years ago? Because he's my dad. He was your dad? Yeah. Mike Burris was your dad? Mm hmm. Yeah. You know, this is dangerous. It is dangerous because I'm being, I don't know whether he's pulling a fast one on me or I'm really being fed mm. facts. Mm. No, it's true. It's true. It's just hard to keep, you know, when you get to a certain point in life, I think it's hard to keep all the facts straight and maybe it's, maybe it's not that important anymore. Yeah, right. You know? Well, I guess it's not that important anymore. You remember the essential things that make you you. They're, they're never going to go away. You know, but memory is such a funny thing. When you have nothing to rely on in, in situations but memory, it can become so confused and so clotted and so... Mm -hmm. So, let's drop it. No, <laughs> no more. Katie Butler is a longtime journalist and the author of a new book, The Art of Dying Well. Originally, in the 1400s, one of the first best-selling self-help books was called Ars Moriendi, or The Art of Dying. And it prescribed rituals for people to 
go through on the deathbed. For example, it described things like feelings of remorse or fear about the afterlife, very common fears that people have when they're approaching the end of life. And it actually prescribed ways for the attendants, the people surrounding them, to actually speak to them. End-of-life doula is a relatively new job title. Today, a quick Google search will pull up a directory of hundreds of doulas all over the world. There's no universally recognized accreditation available for them yet. But the field is growing, and as Butler says, the doulas work very much as a throwback to the past. So they had ritual ways of dealing with the understandable emotions of approaching the end of life. And we have lost those, and we have transformed our dying experience from an emotional and spiritual saying goodbye into a medicalized flail and attempt to postpone and put off death at all costs. The doula's work is about recovering those lost rituals. It's about finding the right words and creating space for reflection and acceptance. I got to hear Zoe and Mimi practice those techniques. And whatever, I don't have any regrets about my life. And that's, that's some kind of a good feeling. I don't have any regrets about Mike. And uh, that's sort of a good feeling. And maybe memory and, and the lack of it or the loss of it is the kindest gift that God gives us because it, it just becomes a little blurred. Mm-hmm. It softens the edges. What? It softens the edges. It's, it softens the edges. And it, it also, I don't think that most people go around, you know, hitting themselves and regretting their lives or Mm-mm. how they lived them or what they did with them. I have a, a pretty happy memory of life. You're, you know, some people are like that, and I think you're fortunate. You think I'm fortunate? I do. I do. Oh, I hope so. I asked Zoe if being a doula is ever unbearably sad. She says that it can be, but being close to death also helps you appreciate being alive. Zoe also doesn't do it for the money. End-of-life doulas are not yet paid enough to make a living on this work alone. This is Zoe's second job. But she says that until a decade ago, no one had heard of a birth doula, and now they're common and widely accepted. She's hoping the same thing will happen soon with death doulas. For the Tale of Two Cities podcast, I'm Annie Berman. Music by Audionautics.com For our last story, we spoke to Anna Cash from the Urban Displacement Project in Berkeley about keeping track of how cities are changing and for whom. Anna, thank you so much for being here today. Um, we're so glad to have you. And so, um, Anna, could you please like explain a little bit about how the Urban Displacement Project uh, works? Sure. So we're a research and action center at UC Berkeley, and we do community-engaged, data-driven, policy-relevant research to help move cities towards more equitable and inclusive futures. Um, So we're conducting research on the nature of gentrification and displacement, the consequences of these phenomena, and potential ways of addressing gentrification and displacement towards more equitable development. So in the the work that you just described to us, like, how does that reflect um, your background? So how did I get here, basically? Yeah, Yeah, sure. Um, So I used to work 
I, I've been working in research for a while, and I used to work in research on kind of financial well-being, so thinking about products and services that would help move low-income folks out of poverty. Um, and that research took me to St. Louis to lead a research project there, and I was moving there right around the time that Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson. And I'm reading a lot about racist urban policy in the 20th century and trying to really understand that. And I got to thinking a lot about sort of geographies of opportunity and how urban policy shapes outcomes for so many people. And during that same time, I moved down to Brazil to do research, and I ended up there kind of right before the Rio Olympics in 2016 and ended up doing a lot of work around displacement in favelas, um, where people were going to be displaced by the press center for the Olympics. I was really beginning to think a lot about displacement in different contexts and then ended up in the Bay Area where... It's kind of ground zero for those issues, and displacement and gentrification are at the center of so many other issues for people. Um, so basically started working at Urban Displacement Project. What do you think are the gains that this kind of program can help people? And I think what we are really focused on is, you know, sort of helping people understand what's going on in terms of gentrification and displacement, right? Like, these are buzzwords, but I, I think we've helped make data really accessible to people. I think when we provide data and provide interactive maps and really accessible tools, people are able to say, hey, I've got this lived experience, and um, hey, city council member, here's the numbers to kind of back up what I've been saying to you. So talking about your organization mapping, it revealed that accelerated increased gentrification in Oakland between 2013 and 2015. Mm -hmm. Which parts of the city you think were more affected by gentrification? Yeah, so I think I can talk a lot about our recent work on rising housing costs and resegregation of the region. Um, we saw, I'll kind of talk about this from a racial equity lens. So we saw a lot of kind of historically black cities and neighborhoods in the region basically losing thousands of low-income black households and um, a lot of those households moving to areas with fewer resources. So, for example, in the Longfellow neighborhood, which is at the kind of northwest corner of those neighborhoods surrounding MacArthur BART, um, you see in between 2000 and 2015 a loss of more low-income black households than any other neighborhood in Alameda County. So that's 400 households or a 30% de decrease. We're seeing some of that kind of classic turnover that people talk about with gentrification in terms of disinvested low-income communities of color with um, higher income white folks moving in. Like, Does your um, organization uh, track where these displaced persons are going after they leave their neighborhoods? There's limits to what you can do with the data, but we did do some demographic analysis with that rising housing costs and resegregation work to better understand household mobility, where people are going. And that's like the flip side of the gentrification story, right? It's, it doesn't end with displacement. We want to understand where people are going. So we saw with that work that a lot of the people who were moving out of some of those central city areas were going to places in eastern Contra Costa County, southern Alameda County, um, Solano County, that, that were places that had fewer resources. They had lower housing costs, but they also had fewer resources. If you go to urbandisplacement.org and you go to the maps section, you can look at migration by race and income and rent and demographic change and get a really a better sense of where people are moving to and from. 
And I think it's really interesting for planners and, you know, advocates, residents in all of those places to try to understand those linkages. In Oakland, what are the road having housing tenure types played in displacement? So I think a lot of people probably don't even know what housing tenure types are. So I think what we mean by that is just kind of different ways of living. So the classic are sort of renting or owning, but there's so much nuance within that. A lot of that predatory lending that happened before the foreclosure crisis was targeted to black and brown communities. So particularly in like the Oakland flatlands, you saw a loss of a lot of homeownership with the foreclosure crisis, real massive buy-ups by investor purchasers of those single-family homes. Um, and now you've got people renting those single-family homes, but they have no protections from massive rent hikes in a really hot rental market. So I think sort of not just looking at renters being the most vulnerable, but zeroing in on within that what kind of tenure types are really vulnerable. And I think pointing out single-family rentals as a really vulnerable tenure type in neighborhoods that are probably possibly already susceptible to gentrification and displacement pressures. And this, um, you know, diversity of housing tenure types, this was what you worked on for your, your master's, Yeah, right? yeah. So, I don't think I get asked about this very often. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So at Urban Displacement Project, we're not only doing research on the nature of gentrification and displacement and the consequences, but also people are like, what do we do, right? So we're starting to do more policy impact analysis. And part of that is looking at the impact of tenant protections. And with that work, I think, you know, we're going to want to get to a point where we are actually looking at policy design um, to understand relative differences between policies and how you can do more comprehensive protection. So it's not just a checkbox, but kind of a reality checklist on, on some of the ways that we're protecting folks who are vulnerable to gentrification and displacement. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah, in. thank you, guys. This is awesome. That's it for this episode of Tales of Two Cities. We hope you enjoyed our episode on endings. Do you have any favorite shops that are going out of business? Or ways of life that you see disappearing? Let us know. Comment on our SoundCloud account or write us on Facebook by looking up our website, Oakland North and Richmond Confidential. You can even tweet at us. We're at North Oakland now and at RI Confidential. Our producer this week is Nina Sparling. Our music is by Kevin McLeod. You can listen to our podcast on oaklandnorth.net, richmondconfidential.org, and on SoundCloud. And you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And speaking of endings, this is our last episode of the semester. We'll be back next fall with more stories from Oakland and Richmond. I'm Yasmin Gremel. And I'm Ricky Rodas. Thanks for listening to the Tales of Two Cities podcast. <laughs>